by the time the Cubs made it to the World Series in 2016, they had picked up a lot more fans than they previously had, perhaps weeks or months or years ago. And people who had no interest in baseball suddenly became fans of them. And I know because I was one of them. I don't like baseball, really. I don't think I've ever watched a full game in my life. But I still stayed up until after midnight to watch the final game, the World Series, to see, are they going to win? This hasn't happened in a century. Are they going to do it? And even though I don't like baseball, I was the next day I was excited for them. I was asking people about it. You know, I was a part of this celebration that the Cubs had won the World Series. And I almost even bought a Cubs t-shirt at, at Walmart even though I don't ever even watch baseball, and I probably will never even watch a game again. Uh, and it was, but it was an event that it hadn't happened in so long uh, that... What was that? I heard a brief sound over here. But it was an event that hadn't happened in over a century, and it was this, this exciting thing to be a part of and become uh, invested in. And I have these couple pictures a couple weeks back. Nick shared some World Series pictures with us. Um, but there was this moment that a lot of people caught on camera uh, maybe this is kind of like the pre, uh, what happened right before. There's all these Cubs, the Cubs players running to each other in this moment when they're all jumping and they're, you know, like, I don't know, it seems like they're like 20 feet in the air. But this picture of them just being so excited, they just won this game, just won this victory, and they were pumped and they couldn't hold it back. And so as we start our time, I wanted to brainstorm, what does it feel like to be on a winning team? Or what does it feel like... Uh, to win, and what? How do we act when we're part of a winning team? You know, we know we didn't play the game with the Cubs, um, but how did they act? And then for those of us that are Cubs fans, how would? And if you're not, you know, imagine you were a Cubs fan, or your team won the World Series, or whatever it is. Like, how would that feel to you? What, what do we feel when when that happens? So let's brainstorm and put things on here. How do we feel? How do we act when we're on a winning team? Excitement. Excitement. Jubilant. Jubilant, a wow. Bit than excitement. Jubilant. Proud. Proud. How was that? Achievement. Achievement, you feel like you've done something? Yeah, it kind of connects with proud, like, yeah, I, I did this. You don't hang your head low or... Maybe relieved. Relieved, yeah. Yeah, relieved, there's like super tense and you worked all this way. I mean, there's like a billion baseball games. So it's like, I just played a thousand games of baseball to give me this one game. Am I going to blow it? Oh, I'm relieved, I didn't blow it. <laughs> relieved. Oh yeah. It's like disbelief, almost like too good, like take some time to sink in. Too good to be true. You're full of energy, like it'd be hard to like go home and just go to sleep right away. You need to go celebrate a little bit. Yeah. Everyone just is like, well, hit the showers, let's go home. Start for next year. Full of excitement. Is that what you said? Full of excitement? Is it energy? Energy. Okay. I was like, wait, something seems wrong here. What was that, Heather? Uh, like your hard work is paid off. Okay, so connects with achievement. Fulfilled. 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 
that's kind of a satisfying feeling about it. Yeah, there's a lot of things. I just find it so interesting of how easily we can connect. Like, look, looking at these pictures, they're just so full of emotion. Like these guys, you can just like feel the emotion that they have, and like you can just feel like almost puts a grin on your face just seeing like how happy they are. Like if you don't care about the Cubs at all, it's still like, wow, I'm just so happy that they're happy, and I wish they had lost, but I still feel happy, you know, or something like that. <laughs> but hopefully you can see these two. Not everyone felt that way. Some people felt this way because these are the Cleveland Indians fans who are sitting on the curb, you know, just looking, you know, at the screen, like it's probably showing the score, and it's like, it's done, like there's no minutes on the clock, we lost, or, yeah, we lost, you know, it's like the, on some of the same stuff, like disbelief, we worked so hard to get here, or like, you know, there's so complete lack of fulfillment, complete lack of satisfaction, and then another one is like, I don't think this is quite the end of it, but you know the look when people's team is about to lose, they're just like, just staring at the, you can't believe this is happening, like this is happening to us. And so these two pictures, it just shows so much emotion um, that get brought out um, from sports, whether from losing them or from winning them. And one, uh, in one picture is excitement and joy, and the other disappointment and sorrow. And sports aren't the only thing that connect with us on this deep emotional level. Um, they bring things up because we can win and lose in lots of areas of life. And I think if you were to describe... Um, I'm not sure if all these would fit under it, but at least two primary of the things we feel um, when we win is joy and peace. Peace kind of maybe goes to the relieved part, but then we a lot of us hit on the joy, the excitement, the jubilant. You, know, you could call pride being having this joy of like, man, that was great, and like full of excitement and energy. And so joy and peace are connected to winning. Before the victory, you're you're focused, you're serious. The outcome of the game depends on what you do and it hasn't been determined yet and so it's not time to have joy or to have peace as you're doing it and you can you maybe see like players on the field are working hard players on the bench they're they're probably not going to be sitting there just being like Ooh, you know dinking around on their phone or something they're going to be like you know like this watching you know, every move like they're waiting to see what's going to happen maybe even bouncing their legs you know and, and stress or whatever but you're not at peace until you know it's going to end you're not rejoicing until the victory has come and it's been determined and you can after that then you can celebrate and then you can relax and you can you can rest and be at peace and you know oh let the shoulders go down in a life i find a lot of times that my joy and my peace um, can fluctuate a lot they can go up and down because there's a lot of situations we walk into in life where we feel like i can either win in this situation or lose in this situation and so for instance maybe if, if things went how i wanted them to go on a particular day, okay, I, this day was a win. Like, I feel peace and I feel joy. But if they didn't go that way, I feel like it was a loss of a day. Like, I lack joy, lack peace. And my joy and my peace go up based on my circumstances. And sometimes my joy and my peace go up uh, based on what I think other people think of me. Um, did I win more respect from that person? Did I win more admiration? Did I win more appreciation from them? Or did I lose respect? Did I lose appreciation? Or maybe I'm in the, the gray zone of like, I'm not really sure. They didn't give me much feedback. And so then it's like, I don't feel joy. I don't feel peace. I'm worried about what they think of me uh, and worried that I've lost something from them. Sometimes my joy can be attached to my performance. Maybe it's like, okay, everything lined up that day, but I did a really bad job. It could be my performance as a husband or as a pastor or as a dad or as a 
witness for Christ or whatever it is. It's like, man, I just did not perform well today. Like I messed that up or I wasted time or whatever it is or I hurt Katie or, or wasn't paying good attention to Hudson. And then it's, it feels like, man, I just lost in that situation. I didn't perform, you know, it was a game. I didn't perform up to my standards. And then at the end, I lost. And so you can, my joy and peace can go up and down. And when you think about just your life in general, which, I don't know which side would be the best, which one, you know, just rank in your mind, like which one do you feel like describes your life the most? Uh, is it kind of like this one where you're uh, worried, nervous, sorrowful, or disappointed? Or is it this where you're feeling this joy and this, this confidence and this peace? And, and these two images, we're going to come back to them. I'll, maybe if I put them here, you'll be able to see them, kind of, maybe. But those two images, in, in the case of these people, their, uh, their joy or their peace was attached to whether their team won or not. And so we're going to come back to this little image. But it's like, you know, think about this little thing. It's like, what is their joy and their peace attached to? I don't know what's attached to. Here, it's like, okay, my team, if they win, like I'm going to feel good. I'm going to feel good about it. So then their joy and their peace are going up and down based on how their team is doing. I know it would be kind of cool if that went up and down, but you just have to work with me here. Ooh, here we go. Their joy and their peace get pulled around and goes up and down based on whether their team is you know, getting pulled around and going up and down. And it's like uh, we can attach our joy and our peace um, to different things in life. And I mentioned some of the things that um, I do that too. And as we're getting close to finishing up this series in the book of John, um, John 13 to 21, now we've come to Jesus' resurrection. Um, next week we'll cover a conversation Jesus has with Peter. Uh, but on the night when Jesus knew he would die, he was trying to prepare his disciples for his death. He assumed, he assured them that this is for your good. You're going to see me again. And he kept telling them, it's going to look, he didn't quite say it in these words, but he's trying to get them to not think of it as a defeat. He's trying to say to them, this is not a loss. This is a win. He kept trying to get them to think in those terms. And he, but he knew ultimately they wouldn't understand it um, until it was kind of like they had to see it to believe it. And after... I mean, after all, he's saying, I'm going to die, I'm come back to life. I mean, who does that? I mean, how is that supposed to give you any assurance? Okay, I don't really get that. Like, is that like a metaphor, like in a spiritual sense? I don't get that. You're about to die, and that stinks. It feels like a defeat and a loss. And what I find interesting about the stories of Jesus' resurrection is the before and after. What their emotions were like before and what their emotions were like after they saw Jesus alive. When they think Jesus is dead, this is what they all look like. They look sorrowful. They look fearful. They look disappointed. Uh, but then as soon as they realize Jesus is alive, all of a sudden everything switches for them. And just, there's all of a sudden this huge change. If you read the book of Acts, um, dis- describing the early church and how the gospel spread, the news about <coughs> Jesus' uh, death and resurrection spread, you see just these guys that are uh, totally joyful and totally at peace. They're just like, whatever happens to us, we're not worried about it because Jesus is alive. And there's this huge change that happens in them. And it's because when they see him alive, they, they realize Jesus won. Everything he said about himself is true. And everything he said he would accomplish is true, they realize. And the difference for, for them between a life of sorrow and fear and a life of joy and peace was realizing Jesus was not dead, but he was alive. And if he is alive... He has overcome everything that causes them sorrow and fear. And the same is true for us. And so the big idea we're going to be 
thinking about this evening is this. It's very simple. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. Exclamation point, not a period. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And that, I mean, that's just a simple truth. You know, if you came to hear something profound, um, I hope that sounds somewhat profound to you. It's, it's like, wow, uh, he died and now he's back to life. Like, that's kind of crazy. Um, but that's just simple statement. Like, that would change our entire life if we could live that in real, the reality that Jesus is actually alive and isn't dead rotting in a tomb somewhere. And so let's go on this emotional journey with them, starting in verses uh, 1 through 10. Uh, in these verses, they discover the empty tomb. And let me ask, well, if, if the Cubs had lost the World Series, it wouldn't have made much of a difference to me. It would have been like, oh, that stinks. But I wasn't like really invested in the Cubs <coughs> in the World Series and you know them winning because I'm not really invested in baseball. And we just moved to Chicago however many years ago, six, seven years ago. Um, so we're Packer fans. But anyway... Uh, I don't expect any of you guys really care much when Aaron Rodgers gets hurt. You're probably like, woo! But anyway, uh, but yeah, it wouldn't have made much of a difference to me. Um, but then, for somebody who's watched the Cubs like their whole life, like their dad or their mom or whoever, or uncle, who started saying like, hey, you're four, you're old enough to watch the Cubs now and learn, you know, to put your, you know, invest yourself in them, and you watch them your whole life. And now, oh my gosh, I've watched every game this season. And now here it is, the final game. This is going to determine it. Somebody in that position, seeing the Cubs lose, there would be a lot more effect um, on your emotions and how you thought of them. And Jesus' closest disciples, they weren't like me with the Cubs. Like they would tend to sign on to Jesus and be like, yeah, this could go either way. Um, it'd be nice if it worked out, but if it doesn't, that's okay too. Like these were like lifetime fans. They had grown up hearing about stories about how God had saved his people in the past and how one day he was going to send another savior, another king, to come and liberate them from their oppressors, just like he had done back, you know, back long ago for their ancestors. And so in Sunday school they were hearing it, at family holidays they were hearing it, and their families all the time were telling them about it, like God is going to come and save us. We have to trust him. We've got to look for look forward to the Messiah look forward to the Christ, look for God to send this king um, so he will set up his kingdom. And so their whole life, you know, they're like lifetime fans of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the king God would send. And at the time, they're occupied by the Roman Empire, and so they're thinking, when this guy comes, whoever this king is, uh, he's going to kick out the Romans, we're going to get our land back, this is going to be great. And then, I mean, for centuries they've been waiting, and now, could it happen in our lifetime? And they start seeing Jesus, this guy, talking about the kingdom of God and saying, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. And they're thinking, is this the king God has sent? And then he starts acting like a king. He starts talking with the authority of a king. And he starts having the power of God behind him. He's healing people and casting out demons. And he's healing diseases. And he's calming storms and controlling nature. And it's like, is this the guy we've been waiting for? Is this the guy God promised to send us? And so these disciples that we read around in the story, they're like fully invested. And if you and imagine you think you found, okay, all these generations have come, and now we might have found the guy after all this time. You know, it's way longer than waiting for a century for the Cubs to win the World Series. This is like centuries upon centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And now he's here, and we're following him. We've been following him for three years, listening to his teaching, eating up every word he says. And they are thought that God is going to do something special with this guy. And they trusted in him. They put their hope in him. They thought he would lead to victory. But then... 
he was killed by the very people that they thought he would defeat. And now they're sitting on the sidewalk, like these guys, I mean, there's no sidewalk, but they're sitting there with these blank, disappointed stares of what just happened? Can this really be happening? And that's their emotional state. And so in verses 1 through 10, we see three disciples who discover something they didn't expect. Jesus died on Friday, and then it says on Sunday, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it's still dark. And she finds the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the tomb. There would have been this little opening, stone rolled over it so people can't go in. She finds it's been rolled away. So without even looking in, she runs and tells two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, uh, John calls him, John is the one writing this book, and he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So she runs and tells Peter and John, uh, the, her words she says are this, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. And so Peter and John begin running toward the tomb, and we're given this little race. They're running, and Peter's in front, and then John gets ahead of him, and he gets to the tomb, and he looks inside, and he's like, oh, there is nothing here. He's, he sees that it's, it's empty, but he, but he does, it, he sees um, the traditional, Jesus would have had a traditional Jewish burial with these linen cloths wrapped around him and spices <coughs> to keep the body from smelling and decomposing. But he, he looks in there and he sees the, the, the claws that were around his body just, just laying there. Well, where's the body? Where, what happened? Where is Jesus? And then Peter kind of brushes past him and he go, actually goes inside the tomb and he sees the clothes too. But then off to another, in another place, he sees the, the claws that were on Jesus' face just wrapped up neatly and put in a different spot uh, within the tomb itself. And John, then he goes inside, he sees everything Peter was seeing, and we're told that he believed. And to unbelieving eyes, this is just confusing. Who opened the tomb? Where's the body? Why'd they take the linen cloths off and leave them? And why'd they take the face cloth off specifically and fold it up so neatly? To John, he's starting to put the pieces together. He believes Jesus left this tomb alive, Somehow, None of them are yet fully understanding everything that was promised. It's not all clicking, but he, he has this moment of belief that the body did not get moved. Jesus is gone. He's, he's alive and somehow, in some way. And I always think it's worth pointing out that the first century disciples, a lot of, sometimes people argue, well, they were just so grief-stricken and they were just so gullible that they, would have just, they were just waiting for anything to relieve their sorrow and their disappointment. And so... Maybe they're just so sad that they like hallucinated Jesus, seeing Jesus alive together. Like people are just so sad, you know, so worked up, like, oh, I thought I saw him. Or, or maybe they went to the wrong tomb, like, oh, they went to somebody else's tomb and they, they, or they were just mistaken. Jesus isn't really gone. Um, but then they had to explain it somehow later, like, well, he was gone, so maybe we like saw him later. And, and I think it's always worth pointing out that they aren't gullible. That the first thing they don't, they say isn't. Jesus is alive. Mary sees the tomb, the stone rolled away, and she runs and tells the disciples, somebody took the body. She doesn't go and tell them, Jesus is alive. The, the, the stone is rolled away. You know, the body's gone. She's like, somebody moved the body. And then when they, the, Peter and John, some people say, well, maybe she went to the wrong tomb. But without her leading them, Peter and John run to the same tomb. And so it was known to them. They all saw and all had knowledge of where Jesus was buried. And so if Mary had gone to the wrong tomb by mistake, Peter and John would have run to a different tomb and been like, Mary, the, the, the stone's still on the tomb here. And she would have been like, oh, I guess I went to the wrong tomb. In which they run to the same one independent of her. 
And they're given these minute, we're given these minute details. Peter started out in front, but then John outran them. Why, why does that matter? <laughs> Who cares? Uh, the linen cloths were lying there, but the faith's, faith's cloth was folded up by itself neatly. Well, who cares? Why are we being told this? We're being told this because it's John who actually ran to the tomb, who actually went into the tomb and is recounting. This is what, this, you know, wouldn't, if you had this crazy moment, wouldn't it be like imprinted on your memory and it's just like, here's just how I saw it. I just, you know, this is, this is what I remember. It was crazy. Like I saw the claws and this, like I route ran Peter and, you know, it would just be these vivid um, details in your mind that you just couldn't help but share. This is how it went for me. Then in verses 11 through 29, that's them discovering the empty tomb. 11 through 29, we hear three times how Jesus appeared to his disciples alive. And in these three appearances, we see the emotional state, uh, and uh, the emotions and the state of mind of the disciples dramatically change. They're feeling sorrow and fear and doubt. But seeing Jesus alive changes all that. So first, Jesus appears to Mary in verses 11 through 18. Peter and John return to their home, but Mary stays at the tomb. So Peter and John, they leave the scene. Mary's standing there, and she's weeping outside the tomb. And then she hasn't even gone in it yet or looked in it. She comes and stoops and looks in, and she sees these two angels dressed in white, these messengers of God, and they ask her uh, this question, Woman, why are you weeping? And her answer in verse 13 is, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. The same thing she told Peter and John. She thinks Jesus is still dead, but is just dead somewhere else. Now, where's his body? I don't know where his dead body is. And then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. And if you read the Jesus' appearances after he was resurrected, they all have this commonality that they see Jesus and there's similarities, and yet there's something distinctly different. He has this new resurrection body, um, and so they like have a hard time recognizing him, even though he, there's a bunch of features uh, all this, there's a lot of overlapping features from when he was uh, in a normal body to now having a resurrection body. And Jesus asked her the same question the angels asked her. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds, whom are you seeking? And she's weeping because she thinks Jesus lost and that she lost Jesus. But Jesus all along said that their weeping would turn to joy. He told them before he died, your weeping is going to turn to joy, because you're going to see me again. And verse 15 says this, Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And then Jesus says just one word to her, Mary. And now she recognizes him. She turns and says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teachers, rabbi. And we're reminded of John 10, when Jesus said, My sheep know my voice. And I call my sheep by, by their name. And he says to her, Mary, and calls her by name. She knows her voice. And I just think it's neat to think about, uh, if you're Jesus' sheep, he knows your name. And he calls you by name. You're not just like, oh yeah, one of those sheep out there all look the same. I can't tell them apart. But he knows each one of us by name who's trusted in him. And he says to us, our name, Mary. And so maybe ask you know, in the quiet of your own, you know, drives in a car or out in nature or whatever, in the quiet, ask God, you know, listen for Jesus to be saying your name and calling you as one of his sheep. And it seems that Mary responds by wanting to cling to Jesus in some way and perhaps to 
maybe to his feet and worship, but there's work to be done. He needs. He sends her as a messenger. You can't. Don't cling to me. I'm about to return to the Father. I'm not going to be you know, on earth permanently. Remember, I'm returning to the Father. This is a temporary thing, me being resurrected on earth right now. And she sends Mary to tell the other disciples. And the big idea that summarizes today's passage is this. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And for Mary, that turns her sorrow into joy. This is not a time to weep as if Jesus has been defeated. Jesus is alive. Jesus is victorious. He's overcome the world. And he says, go and tell the others. And her sorrow turns to joy. And then in verses 19 through 23, Jesus appears to some of his closest disciples. It's not the whole band of 12. It's just some of them. And verse 19 tells us they're in a room with locked doors. And why? It says because they're afraid of the Jews. The, the religious leaders, the chief priests who who banded together to get Jesus killed, now they're huddled in a room thinking, well, we were his followers. What's going to happen to us now? Our leader got killed. Won't we get killed too or, or have, be mistreated in some way? And even with the doors locked, Jesus suddenly stands among them and greets them with these words, Peace be with you. And they're full of fear about what others will do to them. And Jesus wants to give them peace. They're living in the fear of defeat. And then Jesus shows them his hands and shows him the nail marks in his hands. So that's one thing. They didn't quite recognize him, but yet he still has scars from that he can show the nail marks. Um, shows him the, the mark in his side when they were going around to see uh, if the, uh, the, the other two criminals and Jesus were crucified together. They come to the other guys and they break their legs so that they um, would, would die quicker. They come to Jesus and they're like, oh, he's already dead. And so uniquely, they stab him with a spear. He was the only one that got stabbed with a spear in the side. And so he shows them the scar on his side. It's really him. None of the other guys had that happen to them. Then they were glad. They had joy because they see Jesus alive. But again, there's work to be done. He says this in verse 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so just as the Father sent Jesus, so he sends his disciples, his original disciples, and us, all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, he sends us just as the Father sent him. But we need the Holy Spirit. He said, when I return to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're not going to do this alone. I'm going to send my personal presence to be with you. And he breathes on them, symbolizing the outpouring of the Spirit, which would then later happen in Acts chapter 2, which you can read about it there. And he sends them to proclaim forgiveness of sins. And it's not that, you know, it's like, you know, I can come along and, you know, tell each of you, like, you're forgiven, you're not forgiven, you're forgiven. It's, it's in the proclaiming of telling people, here's the good news. Jesus died for your sins. And if you turn from whatever else you're trusting in and put your faith in him and believe this good news, your sins are forgiven. That's how we proclaim forgiveness of sins. Any one of us can do it to somebody because we can say, if you trust in Jesus... And it's pretty authoritative to tell somebody, if you trust in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. Like That's authority that Jesus gives us of telling people the gospel, the good news. And our big idea is Jesus is not dead, he's alive. But for these disciples, fear, they're sitting in this room afraid, but fear turns to joy. And then Jesus blesses them with peace and sends them on a mission. The work doesn't stop with Jesus. He says, Peace be with you. Don't be afraid of the world. I'm sending you into the world just as the Father sent me into the world on this mission that you need to continue. And lastly, Jesus appears to all his closest disciples. 
And so look at verses 24 through 29. We haven't looked at these, read these yet. We'll read the first two verses. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so Thomas, he wasn't there at the last visit, and he's like, I'm, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. And I'm not even going to believe it unless I see proof that this is really Jesus. Does he have the scars of crucifixion? And does he have the unique scar on his side that the other two criminals and nobody else has because everyone else gets their, their legs broken so that they suffocate. But Jesus was already dead, so he got the spear. And he's like, I won't believe it until I see those two things. And so Thomas gets what he asked for. So look at verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your <coughs> finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. And Thomas had to wait eight days before Jesus confirmed this to him. And you wonder, what was he thinking about during those eight days? And I would imagine that he's putting the pieces together. If Jesus is alive... You know, they said he's alive. I'm not going to believe it till I see it. Like I can't take it on your word. I need to see it. But if, if he is alive, what would that mean? What would that mean about who he is? What would that mean about, what should I say to him? Maybe he thought that. What should I say to him if he really does show up? What, who would he be? How would I address him? And up to this point, I mean, they've called him Lord. They've called him Master. They've called him Teacher. But when he sees him, he calls him my Lord and my God. Because he realizes if Jesus is alive, that means he really is the Messiah. He really is the Christ. He really is my Lord. He really is my King. But at the same time, it also means he is my God. He talked about how he and the Father were one. If anybody sees, uh, sees me, they've seen the Father. He talked about how he was the Son and how, the, how God had given him authority to do his work on the earth. And he, so he's thinking, if he was really alive, he really is God in the flesh. He really is my King. So he confesses that when he gets to see Jesus. And if Jesus is alive, Thomas's confession should be what we all call Jesus. My Lord, my God. If Jesus is alive, then he is who he said he was, and he is the one who was with God in the beginning and who was God in the beginning. Before anything else was created, Jesus existed, and we all exist through him. And our big idea is Jesus is not dead, he's alive. And for Thomas... Jesus is not, is not dead means he is my Lord and he is my God. Jesus turns his doubt into faith in who he is. And in verse 20, John writes what he says that we all should. He wants us all to confess. Now Jesus did many, I'm sorry, verse 30, not verse 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to believe right along with Thomas. That's why he wrote this whole book. And eternal life, as we saw back in chapter 17, isn't about 
isn't something you get when you die. Like, oh, when I die, I'll get eternal life when I go to heaven. Eternal life is defined as knowing God. Jesus is the way to God. He's the truth about God. And he dispenses the life of God because it's all bound in him. He's the one who controls it. And so we talked about, we saw joy with Mary. With Mary. We saw peace with the other disciples. And lastly, Jesus gives Thomas trust. The key to joy and peace is trust in Jesus. And if we don't have a Thomas moment, we can't have peace and joy. If we will not believe in Jesus as our Lord and our God, then we will not experience peace and joy. We need to stop doubting and start trusting and living that way. And when you, one of the things that Jesus talked about is trying to get them to understand um, what is about to happen looks like defeat. And the world's going to hate you. Uh, he, he doesn't give them, it's not really a great pep talk. He's like, uh, the world hated me, so it's going to hate you. Uh, expect persecution. Um, I'm leaving, by the way, too, uh, so you have to do it on your own. No, he didn't say you have to do it on your own. But he said, I'm going to be leaving. The world's going to hate you. You're going to get persecution. Um, and maybe you'll even die. Uh, and it's like, wow, cool, Jesus, thanks. Um, but he says, all, you know, this is gonna, all this is going to happen to me, too, and it's going to look like defeat. But he says, have peace, have courage. I have overcome the world, whatever the world can throw at you, whatever threats or whatever anything else, like, hey, you need to keep quiet about Jesus. Hey, you can't tell people about him. Hey, that's weird that you live for him. Whatever the world can throw at us, Jesus has overcome it all. The world threw everything it could at Jesus. And if you think about this, what you think can defeat you or has defeated you has power over you. What you think can defeat you or has defeated you has power over you. And we let our let our circumstances or the world determine our joy and peace. We give it power over us that Jesus has set us free from. And we have this tendency, you know, Jesus says the ruler of this world is about to be proven wrong and defeated. And the world's about to be defeated. And he's, so Satan wants nothing else than for us to be afraid of what the world can take away from us that it really can't. Um, because we're so afraid that... Uh, world and Satan can take something from us that Jesus has given us. And so we have this tendency to offer ourselves as slaves to an enemy that Jesus has defeated. And can you imagine Jesus comes, somebody comes into your life, imagine you are enslaved, you're shackled in a prison or something. Somebody comes in, unlocks the door, lets the shackles feel like, good news, like you've been forgiven of all the debt you have, you don't need to be shackled to this anymore, you can come out and live free. And then they leave, and then you're like, well, yeah, but... You know, and I'm scared. Like, what if you know? What if they don't like me because I leave this 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 place? Or what if you know? What if this happens? And we just put the shackles on. And Jesus is saying, No, there's nobody out here. There's no guards here. I defeated them all. You can just come out. You're free. But we come back to an enemy that's been defeated, and we put the shackles back on willingly. And so often we surrender to a defeated enemy. We willingly willingly return as victims to the one Jesus defeated. And when we let other people think, what other people think of us determine whether we talk about Jesus, we put the shackles back on. Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world as the Father sent me, which means we're supposed to be bearing witness to the truth. And when we let other people, when we think that other people's rejection or frustration or annoyance with us, when we let that keep us silent, we're putting shackles back on, uh, the enemy's shackles back on that Jesus has defeated. And when we live as if sin is just a normal part of life, well, you know, it's just how it is. I'm just going to, you know, be sinful. I'm going to have trouble loving people. I'm going to be impatient. And, you know, I'm not going to have joy and peace. You know, this is part of life. 
when we do that, we're putting shackles back on um, from an enemy that has already been defeated. And a question we can ask ourselves is, what are we afraid to lose that Jesus has already won for us? What are we afraid to lose that Jesus has already won for us? The things that people, that we get so afraid of people taking us away, and we can, we did these images because it's like if our Christian life of following Jesus looks like this, you know, like worried, uh, sorrowful, and anxious about, you know, what people can do to us, or if we're just like, well, you know, sin is just going to be part of my existence and I'm just going to hurt people and um, I just have to give in to it. I'm just going to give in to it for the rest of my life. Um, or if we think, well, you know, I, I, can't, I just can't talk about Jesus. It's too scary and, you know, what people might not like me and all those things. We're, li- we're letting a defeated enemy um, keep us feeling that way. Where Jesus says, no, there's been a victory won. And so it's, it's not as if we're waiting to see, is Jesus going to win? Jesus has won already. Um, he is winning still today, and he is going to win. Jesus has won a victory. And so that's why we talked about what is it like to live um, on a winning team? It's like we're not, in any situation we enter into, we're not waiting to, you know, I could win or lose in this situation. It's like, well, everything has already been won. Jesus has already won it all for us. And so this is what uh, we, can, we can live with this excitement, this jubilance, this, this pride, not in ourselves, but uh, maybe we, we would call it confidence. Uh, and it would be a humble confidence because, like, well, Jesus has done all this. He's won it. And so I'm just humbly and confidently telling people, like, hey, this is what he's done for me, and I want you to be um, have it too, and having this excitement and energy of, like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened, and now and Jesus has done it all, and I don't have to be afraid anymore. And so when we think about what we attach ourselves to. Um, take a minute and think to yourself or write down, what do I attach? Think about joy in your life. When do you feel a lot of joy? When do you feel a low amount of joy? Um, and what is the thing that determines that? And that's the thing that you've you know, attached your, yourself to. Is Now is that thing, um, when that thing's going well or when it's going bad, like joy goes up, goes up and down. So what what's something in your life that you've attach your joy to? When do you feel those things, excited, proud? Or when do you feel low? Then on the other side is peace. When do you feel when when what needs to be true for you to feel peace? What in your life do you have where it's like, okay, when that's happening, I, I'll feel, I feel at peace. Or maybe you say, if only this would happen, then I would feel at peace. Or uh, when do you, you know, feel like you know, anxious and scared? And, and what is that thing that your peace is attached to? Will you equip yourself to that, and however that thing goes, that's where your peace is. What's that thing? Take a moment just to reflect on that. interesting image that can help us think about this is I've never been ziplining you kind of like crawl up in a tree well you don't crawl up, you have like a ladder or something to get up in a tree and there's this little platform 
uh, and then you attach yourself to a, a cable, and then you go across like the you know big expanse of, of open air to the other side. Um, and that would be pretty terrible. You know, the, the gear looks a lot like this. You just got to hold really tight to this. And you hold it. No, it's it's like a big harness. It doesn't look like this for anybody who's never done it wants to do it. But I mean, kind of similar. It's like you get up there, and it can be terrifying. I mean, like imagine there's like this platform around you, and it's like. If I step off, it'd be 30 feet. But um, you clip yourself in um, to like this this harnessing system, and now it's like, okay, I'm still standing with a 30 foot drop off, and yet the fear can go away because something else um, is keeping me safe. Something else has I'm securely attached to it. That's the thing that I'm depending on, and it's like I'm not going to attach myself to another person because then they're going to be the ones keeping me up, or I'm not going to be like, well, it's just up to me. I can do this, you know. I throw this off, but we're attached to this thing. Um, but even if uh, maybe, you know, if it would be possible to be attached to this thing, for, and there's no way you can get hurt, there's nothing that can be taken from you, it's like no way you can fall off, but it would be possible to still be, you know, be, you know scared of like being fearful, and even though nothing could harm you, like still being afraid that, but what if something did? What if I would fall off? And I think, think maybe we all come into a relationship with. With Jesus in various ways that the world has affected us and made us afraid and I think I mean thinking of the tenderness of the moment that he has with Mary <coughs> her name Mary I want you to realize I'm alive hear my voice Mary and I think we'll even see next week of how Jesus interacts with Peter after his big failure he had of Jesus working with us over a lifetime of trying to get us, if we're cowering in fear, like the world is going to hurt me, you know, people are going to hurt me, I can't live for Jesus because what will people think, what's going to happen? And he's getting us to be like, no, you can stand. Like, look, it's, it's safe. It's not that the fall isn't gone, uh, but it's, you can't, it can't harm you. You're attached to this other thing. And Jesus even wants us even more. Okay, I don't just want you to feel happy on this platform. I actually want you to get on the line, you know, and zip across these trees. He's like, you know, maybe that's an image of, as the Father sent me, like, now you, you feel safe, like, I'm holding you here. You can trust me. I'm victorious. I've overcome the world. And now I want to send you, you know, zipping across there. And if you can, if you're able to let go and allow yourself to go across a zip line, it's like this, you know, this freedom and this joy and this excitement. And you can just rest and you don't have to hold on anything. You can just rest in the fact that this harness is holding you up there. You don't have to hold yourself at all. And so Jesus wants us to step off of whatever we're you know, trying to put our trust in. He wants us to step off and see that he can hold us. Because sometimes we ask, like, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll never feel at peace. Or never, maybe I'll never feel joy. But one of the biggest ways, the way we can experience it is you have to actually step off to see Jesus can hold me. And I can trust him, and he can protect me, and he is victorious. Like, I stepped out, and it's, a, it's okay that that person didn't like me talking about him. It's okay that, you know, I failed at loving in that moment. Jesus has overcome my sin, and so I don't have to live in this anymore. And so, us stepping off, realizing Jesus keeps us safe. We don't have to trust or be afraid of the danger. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the good news that you've been raised Jesus has been raised, and that he's alive, and he's not distant, he's not defeated, but he is victorious, and we can live as people who join in celebrating his victory over sin and Satan and death in the world. 
Thank you for gathering us here. Would you help us uh, to not to celebrate his death in the Lord's Supper and remember it and what he's done for us and look to him to help us to live for you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>